I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 15. We continue our exposition of 2 Kings. And we've been dealing with the kings both of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and of Israel, the northern kingdom. And we're going to see that uh, this chapter, chapter 15, is... Uh, has uh, at the very beginning uh, an account of one of the kings of Judah by the name of Azariah. It ends with an account of Jotham, who reigns also in Judah, sandwiched between those two kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, is an account of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we're going to notice that we have, in a sense, in this chapter, bookends. Uh, the two uh, kings of Judah on either end and the kings of Israel in the middle. Uh, let's uh, look together then at uh, God's word as it comes to us in chapter 15 of Second Kings. In the 27th year of Jerobo- Jeroboam, king of Israel... Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king, so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah the son of Jeroboam reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. Shalom the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Iblim and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Manahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria. And he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tifsha and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on 
because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it, and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. In the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. And so all the king of Assyria turned, so the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, his captain, conspired against him with fifty men of the people of Gilead, and struck him down in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, with Argov and Arya. And he put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah, and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramiah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned twenty years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came and captured Aijon and Abel-Makmakah, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramiah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the king of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramiah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of, Israel, or the king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramiah, against Judah. And Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we come to this passage of Scripture, 
you are the one who inspired these words to be written, and it is your intent that we should read and study them, that we would gain by them. So, Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we look together at this passage, that we might see and learn those things that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The British historian Herbert Butterfield wrote a book called Christianity and History, and uh, Butterfield died in 1979. But he spoke about the orderings of a healthy society, and he said this, The orderings and arrangements of a healthy society provide quiet inducements and concealed checks to keep the surface of life comparatively respectable, though down below there slumbers all the time the volcano that lies in human nature. Upon these quiet inducements and concealed checks depend all the difference between civilization and barbarism. He goes on to say, we imagine that the virtue which cushions the conflicts between men and mitigates the self-aggression we imagine this virtue to spring directly out of nature, and we almost come to think of human beings as creatures that are naturally civilized. Butterfield says, we do not go far enough in considering how precarious our civilized systems will be if we allow certain of the guards to be taken off. Merely by forgetting certain safeguards, we would lose that tolerance and those urban urbanities the respect for human life, which are in reality the late development of civilization." End of quote. The reason I uh, reference Butterfield's comment is that what we have described for us in chapter 15 of Second Kings is a period of time in the history of Judah and Israel, when it seems as though those guards are removed. And it seems as though that Israel, especially Israel in the, in the north, but Judah is following close behind, that they are speeding ever more quickly to their dissolution and to the day of their final destruction. And so this chapter conveys an overall impression as you read it. Don't, doesn't it strike you as we read it tonight? Uh, the repetition of conspiracies, the repetition of murders and usurpation of authority. And uh, over and over again, this pattern repeats itself and uh, Israel is steadily moving to the point of its own utter self-collapse. We're going to see that. We're not far away in the book of 2 Kings. If you flip a few pages, you'll see that actually it's in chapter 17 that we read about the final fall of the nation, the northern nation of Israel. And in that chapter, we're going to see that the author of Kings wants to make it very clear why it is that Israel falls. And so what we see in this chapter is, in a sense, the evidence of a nation that is free-falling to judgment. 
the evidence that a nation is free-falling into judgment. I just like to have to be somewhat uh, selective in what we choose to focus on tonight. And so we're going to look first at the first king that is mentioned, that is King, king Azariah, who is also known as Uzziah. And I want to note this about him. And this is my first point. We see a godly king brought under the Lord's discipline. We see a godly king brought under the Lord's discipline. And uh, with Azariah, uh, who is also known as Uzziah, and you notice that in verse 13, he's called Uzziah. And then later on uh, in uh, Verse 32, he's called Uzziah. And Uzziah is most well-known, and you may remember him from what chapter and what prophet? Isaiah chapter 6. In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah reigned 52 years. That's a long time. And yet his reign was characterized by this, this event that took place in his life, and that event was his own as we saw last week, the pride that so easily comes, he became proud, and the Lord touched him because of that pride. I invite you to look, uh, to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 26, which gives us a little bit of the background of Isaiah. And I want to be careful not to spend too much time in looking at that which the author of Kings does not tell us. The author of Kings is, uses shorthand, and he merely tells us that the Lord touched the king Azariah, that the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. This is the, the thing that the author of Kings points to about this king. If we look at Second Chronicles, we see that Uzziah, or Azariah, was, uh, we see again, the basic information about him, but he's portrayed in Chronicles as a person who set himself to seek God in his youth. And it's an example to us. You know, you don't have to be an old person to be someone who sets himself to seek God. In verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done, and he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, the Lord made him prosper. So Uzziah is a king who was benefited and helped by the Lord. The Lord helped him. We read that uh, throughout this account. He became strong. The Lord helped him. He was strong militarily. He was strong in terms of building projects throughout Judah. Uh, he was strong in uh, uh, defeating those who uh, he went out against. And there's one thing that uh, the author of Chronicles calls attention to that I can't help but uh, call attention to for you as well, verse 10. At the end of verse 10, it says that, well, in verse 10 it says, he has had large herds in the Shephelah, that is, in the hill country of Judah. And the hill country is that part of Judah that descends to the plain uh, toward, toward the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, evidently Uzziah had uh, many, he cultivated the vines, in the vine dressers in the hills, in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. He loved the soil. He was a farmer at heart, and he loved to, 
to, uh, to work the plants and to do that. And the Lord blessed Uzziah. And we read that he, in verse 16 of chapter 26 of Second Chronicles, that when he became strong, he drew, grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him and the 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord but for the priests, the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. And then Uzziah was angry, verse 19, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried out to go, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And so uh, King Uzziah is a man who became proud and lifted up because of the Lord's blessing on him. And isn't that a warning to all of us as well? The Lord blesses you. The Lord gives you of his grace and his mercy. He provides for your needs. And what is our tendency? when we experience abundance of the blessings of the Lord. What is our tendency? We tend to sit back. We tend to let go. We're not as careful. And we're not as careful to, to walk closely with the Lord, in humility with him, to seek him in his word. Or if we do outwardly, sometimes we're not engaged inwardly. And how does a person get to the place where Isaiah did, where he decided to go directly against what he knew the Word of God taught? He knew this, and yet in his pride he was lifted up to go and to do this, commit the sin, and the Lord disciplined him for it. And so we see the discipline of a godly man. And... It's interesting to know that if we go back now to 2 Kings chapter 15, that uh, the author says about him that the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. He was not allowed to go into the temple. He lived in a separate house. And that uh, isolation, that living apart, that suffering under the disease of leprosy never left him. And uh, Azariah um, was, uh, suffered the mortification of the remembrance of his sin. We might think of pride as sort of a spiritual leprosy. A spiritual leprosy. It's like you go out, um, we have some months before this happens, but you go out and you, you, know, you, you want to plant a garden, and uh, you don't have any problem at all growing weeds, do you? Weeds just come up without much effort. In fact, they, they, it's most frustrating, most frustrating. 
You know, pride comes up without any effort. Human pride comes into our hearts, a carelessness with the things of God, a self-sufficiency manifesting itself in a detachment from the Word of God, manifesting itself in a prayerlessness, a lack of a sense of urgency in the presence of God, and a nearness to God. And pride grows in those circumstances until we're quite ready to do that which we know we know is displeasing to God. And so Matthew Henry comments that it's very possible that uh, Azariah or Uzziah was a pious man, a godly man, who was humbled in this discipline the Lord put upon him, which was not lifted. Matthew Henry comments on that, and he says, no doubt that was a mortification for Azariah. What do we mean by that? It was a warning to him about his tendencies that left unchecked would come about. And it is true that when the Lord disciplines us, it is often the case, and sometimes some of you could testify to this as well, the scars that we have, the sorrows that we bear, the things that we carry in life, sometimes, though we love the Lord, Though we have been humbled by it, they are always a reminder, aren't they? They are a reminder to us of our need for God and of our need to stay in a place of humility before him. Azariah is an example of a man whom the Lord disciplined for his own good and even unto the whole extent of his life. It doesn't mean that he was cast out of God's love or that the Lord didn't love him, but there was something that this leprosy stayed with him. It was something he could not forget, and uh, it was no doubt for his own good. The second thing I want us to know is that the Word of God is that which controls history, we'll say it that way first, the Word of God controls history, but in particular, it is the Word of God that holds the forces of chaos in check. And I want us to notice this, especially as we look at the next king, the king of Israel, Zechariah, because the next king, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, he reigned over Israel, how long? Six months. Azariah reigned 52 years. Now you have to remember that he was in hiding for a lot of that reign and his son was doing the public work for him. But here is a reign, Zechariah, king of Israel, six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his father, as his fathers had done. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And then we're told that... Uh, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down and put him to death, and Shalom reigned in his place. Shalom's reign was not uh, much better. He reigned one month. But here, Zechariah's uh, life comes now to an end because he is murdered. 
by Shalom. So much for Shalom. The rest of the deeds, uh, so much for Zechariah. The rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And then we notice verse 12, this was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. What commentators notice, and I hope you notice as well, is that last phrase, and so it came to pass. The word of God, the promise that God made to Jehu, that he would have four generations on the throne. And that was God's promise to him to reward him for Jehu's obedience in carrying out his command to wipe out the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And Jehu was zealous in that cause, though he didn't care for the law of God and he didn't, was not a pious man at all. And yet, because of his obedience in that one respect, God rewarded him with four generations, four sons to sit on the throne. Zechariah was the last of the four sons. And when he is removed, we see that it is God fulfilling, the, the, writer, of, the writer wants us to see that God has now fulfilled his word to Jehu. And uh, that is the point, that God's word is in control of all of the events that take place here. But we notice from this point on, there is a steady and an ever-increasing uh, speed. There is a dissolution and, and, and an, uh, one... one uh, one, uh, pa one repeated pattern after another. We were given the time of the kings, an evaluation of the kings, a report of what they did that was evil, and then conspiracies, con conspiracies against them, and then finally the concluding evaluation or conclusion about each of the kings. And chronologically, we're only dealing with about 20 years, 753 to 732, in which we have five kings and four conspiracies. And in Zechariah's case, the one thing that really leaps out at us is this verse 12, and so it came to pass. That phrase, and so it came to pass, is used six times in the book of Genesis. It's used in the book of Genesis after God speaks, and God said, let there be. And it came, and it came into being. And so what is being said by the author of Kings is this thought. And I hope that this is impressed upon you. Historical events, not only the historical events of salvation history as they're worked out, we see in the redemptive history of God in, in, that's recorded for us in Scripture, but historical events are God's bringing into being of his word. And God said, and it was. Historical events are God's bringing into being of his word. I couldn't help but notice, a couple Sundays ago, we read together as a confession of faith in the morning service, the Westminster Larger Catechism 101. Larger Catechism 101. And in that catechism answer, you have this. Almighty God, having being in and of himself, gives being to all his words and works. Almighty God, having being in and of himself, gives being to all his words and all his works. An amazing thing. What is history 
History is the coming into being of the decrees of God. History is the coming into being of the word of God. And here God had made a promise to an ungodly king, Jehu. And God kept his word. He kept it. And so, in the death of Zechariah, we see that word coming to completion. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, speaks about the word of God in this way. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not sitting in heaven frustrated. God powerfully accomplishes all of his purposes and his will. And that is what history is. And that's what the author of Kings wants us to know. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. The word spoken to Jehu. And so it came to pass. And it is the great comfort of everyone who is a believer to know that the events, not only of history in the abstract, but the events concretely thought of in your experience and mine are ordered by a sovereign, almighty God, who in those events, as painful as they may be for us to experience them, God shows his infinite wisdom in conforming his people to the image of Jesus Christ. And it is sometimes difficult for us in our sinful natures to be able to look at the unfolding of the way that our lives have unfolded. The past decisions we have made, like Uzziah oftentimes experiencing the long-term effects of sins that we have committed. It is sometimes difficult to wrap our minds around this sense that even those things that are hard and difficult for us are ordered by God for his glory and for our good. And that is something that this, is a, this promise, this realization, that not only history in the abstract, but our own unfolding lives are a wonderful work of God, a wonderful work of the grace of God. Uh, in Ephesians, uh, we are said that by grace are you saved, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And he says that we have been saved to do good works. And uh, the works that he speaks of are not of our own doing, but of God's. And the word that is used there is poema. Your life is a poem. It is, it, is, it is a wonderful work of art. And that includes the back side and the front side. That includes all of the things, the people that people don't see. And, the, people that, and the, th the things that people don't see and the things that people do see. It includes it all. 
And God is very much at work in history. He's at work even in these events that are unfolding here. The Lord allowed Israel a period of prosperity. And uh, you remember that under the previous king, uh, uh, Jeroboam II, uh, we have uh, a period of prosperity. But now we are finding that Israel is descending into a dark place. Barbarism, uh, one conspiracy after another, one murder after another, and civil stability is being threatened. Ralph Davis says, civil stability is a gift and it has been withdrawn from Israel. Uh, He reminds us, we ought to be reminded that uh, Paul instructs Timothy that in our prayers we ought to pray making intercession and thanksgiving for all people including kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We ought to pray for the well-being of civil society, uh, for the purpose that we may lead peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified lives. Uh, uh, This was taken away from Israel. We see this Throughout this chapter, signs of, of uh, further disintegration. Um, and we see that uh, the cruelty of Monahem as he attacks the people of Tirzah, as he rips open the women who are pregnant. And we see it also in, uh, under Monahem that uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, when Pul, who is Tiglath Pileser, who appears later in the chapter, comes against the land, Uh, What he does is uh, he solidifies his power by giving uh, Tiglath-Pileser money, a thousand talents of silver, to help him confirm his hold on royal power. And boy, if you want to see the corruption of society and the degradation of society, you see people holding on to power and using money to do it. And that's what he did here. Uh, and uh, he managed to get the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, to, to withdraw, and, uh, but not, at, not until he had exacted money by taxation from the wealthy in Israel. And then we see further that uh, uh, the, the kings uh, continue in uh, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we come finally to, uh, I'm skipping over some things, but coming to uh, verse 26, and and then also verse 27, we have Pekah's reign on this 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah. Pekah, the son of Remaiah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and then uh, we're told that Tiglath-Pileser, who is the same one as Pul, who we saw just a minute ago, he comes against the land, only this time he's not bought off. And he captures all these territories in the northern part of the northern kingdom of Israel, actually taking a huge part of Israel. Notice in particular the ones that stand out. Kadesh, Hazar, Gilead, Galilee, 
all the land of Naphtali, he carried the people captive to Assyria. And he was known for his uh, taking people uh, and sending them into exile. And this is a judgment of God upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we see then the, the judgment of God upon the northern kingdom. And we come finally to see tonight um, the, how, how we ought to look at this, I think, in terms of the, uh, thirdly tonight, uh, looking and seeing that all, in all of the destruction and all of the dissolution of society, we see a sign of hope. We see a sign of hope. And that hope is pointed out to us, I think, in verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign. So what that tells us is that Pekah's reign began in the very last year of Uzziah's reign. And what I'd like to do uh, is point out to you that um, this leads us to consider the fact that this is the year that Isaiah, that Isaiah was called to be a prophet. And this is the year that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. So uh, I invite you to turn then to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6 we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with the two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, he call, and one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so what I want us to see tonight is that as we look at the kings of Israel, and we look finally at Jotham, the son of Ahaziah, Azariah, and uh, we see that uh, uh, in those days, uh, the kings of uh, Rezin, uh, of Syria, and Pekah begin to come against Judah. We see the whole, uh, the whole uh, uh, of the nation uh, beginning to crumble. Our direction ought to be turned by these clues uh, that the writer would have us to see that uh, there is a king that stands above the fray, and he is the Lord of hosts. And uh, it's interesting as well that uh, we're told about this king in chapter 11 of uh, Isaiah. I'm sorry, chapter 9 of Isaiah. Notice the reference to the land 
of Zebulun in chapter 9, verse 1, says, There shall be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has come. And then he goes on to describe the joy that is going to come to God's people. And then he gives the reason for it in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Ever, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with righteousness and with justice from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so in the last year of Azariah's reign, when Pekah began his reign in Israel, Isaiah was called and he testifies because he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, John tells us that Jesus, Jesus tells us that uh, Isaiah saw the glory of of Christ. He saw the glory of Christ. And so what is it then that we need to be focused on? How are we to think about our lives, about human history and the unfolding of human history? I think the first thing is that we want to stay close to Christ. We want to stay close to him and pay careful attention to our hearts and pay careful attention to everything that we've heard lest we drift away from it, lest we grow careless, lest pride come in our hearts. But secondly, we need to cultivate repentance for sin, because the kingdom that Isaiah tells us about is a kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of grace is for those who find themselves in Psalm 51 that we read and sang this morning. In Psalm 51, where he accounts the sentence of God to be a just sentence, but he casts himself upon the mercy of God. So we want to be those who humble in the presence of God, hold to the promise of God, and cast ourselves fully upon his mercy. And then as those who have received the knowledge of Christ and the light of Christ, and as those who have now, to whom it has been revealed, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his satisfaction on the cross for our sins, we want to place our trust completely in him and know that the one who gave himself for you, the one who shed his blood for you, will see you safely into the fulfillment of his kingdom. There shall be no gloom 
for her, for her who was in anguish. Uh, we are brought to anguish by our sins, but the gospel announces to us the forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel that fills your life and mine who are trusting in Christ tonight with a glorious, joyous knowledge of that life that God gives to us in Christ alone. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we consider these verses that are, uh, we have uh, looked at tonight, that we would be reminded again of our great need to stay dependent upon you. Oh Lord, would you so work in us that we would be constantly casting ourselves upon your mercy for your goodness and your mercy are revealed to us in your promise that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to hold firmly to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, close tonight in response, uh, sing hymn number 515. And uh, in this hymn, as we stand together, let's sing it. Uh, the, the first stanza says this, All hail the mighty conqueror, Christ Jesus, our great King. All hail the glorious warrior to whom our praise we bring. May he be given honors by all his ransomed host. We too are more than conquerors who make his name our boast. Let's sing together.